Chapter Eleven of Find the Woman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Find the Woman by Gillette Burgess. Chapter Eleven. The Norcross Apartments. How John Fenton helps out a criminal scheme. Witnesses an arrest and an escape. Waits in a deserted flat and gets a new name. The chauffeur had hardly finished his story before the car drew up to the curb in front of a brick apartment house on one hundred and seventy-fifth street and stopped fenton descended felt in his pockets in vain for a tip and bade the chauffeur an apologetic good-night he went into the vestibule and looked along the row of letter-boxes for the name of flint and pressed the electric button above a muffled hello came diminished and faint through the speaking-tube he replied what the devil is it the invisible speaker asked i've got the jewels fenton shouted through the mouthpiece a spasmodic clicking of the electric latch came in answer by its nervous rapidity fenton could easily imagine that his information had caused some excitement he pushed open the front door and ran upstairs the halls were dimly lighted and he looked in vain for any indications of a greeting up to the second up to the third floor and then looking higher he heard a man's gruff voice calling stealthily one flight more up fenton went with his bag at the top a man unrecognizable in the semi-darkness seized his arm and hurried him toward a lighted hallway spun him round and looked at him eagerly who are you anyway my name doesn't matter said fenton i've got the stuff right here well i'll be hanged he ejaculated and then he looked at fenton again where in the devil did you get em fenton had by this time learned discretion and replied only by a question is flint here the man stared his expression changed then he controlled himself yes i'm flint he said finally fenton breathed a sigh of relief oh then i suppose it's all right you'll take em right back to the brewster house i suppose you'll lose no time oh that's all right i'll get him back the first thing in the morning fenton handed him the bag somewhat reluctantly there seemed to be nothing else to do but it seemed a mild ending to his night of adventure there was no doubt that it was flint by the octoroon's description he grabbed the bag fiercely and looked inside then snapped it shut fenton became uneasy then i can tell miss you know the girl that it's all right he said yes it's all right son flint held the bag behind his back they'll be in the safe by nine o'clock before the coroner comes but you'd better skip now there's no need of exciting suspicion go home and go to bed you've done well he crowded fenton to the doorway nervously and stood guarding it fenton turned hesitatingly i hope i can find her he said she was awfully worried about this but i've done all i can i suppose good night said the man abruptly and suddenly slammed the door fenton heard the lock click then for the first time he grew actively suspicious flint was a tall gaunt grizzled creature wrinkled and weather-beaten with deep-set gray eyes as he turned for his final word he showed a great misshapen ear the lower lobe was split half in two suddenly as if spoken by an audible voice came the fortune-teller's words beware of a man with a split ear fenton's suspicions grew blacker but he had done exactly what he had been asked to do 
if there were any mistake it was surely not his he turned slowly to the staircase and walked down thinking well it was too late now perhaps it was all right why should he worry so thinking he went downstairs and out to the street should he go home he smiled at his costume his dress clothes and top hat seemed to demand another adventure he felt abstractedly in his pockets for a cigarette and noticed for the first time that again his pockets were absolutely empty what a night he yawned and walked up one hundred and forty sixth street thinking of belcharmion just as he turned the corner two men walking rapidly passed him he caught but a momentary look but that sight made him turn eagerly and gaze at them again there was something familiar about both of them by jove it was o'shea and elkhurst or as it appeared both had aliases nallery and sproule neither had recognized him fortunately he stopped in a trance of wonder what did this encounter mean he could still see them walking rapidly toward the norcross apartments as fenton stood there gaping at the night they turned up the steps and entered the building then in a flash he began to suspect them of course both were after the jewels and if they were going up to the apartment either they would attack flint or wait now he had it flint was probably a member of the same gang it was as plain as a photograph at last evidently flint had been notified of the capture of the gems well no wonder he had been surprised when fenton had handed them back to one of the gang itself fenton cursed himself for his stupidity but all this was surmise he wanted to make sure and hurried back to the entrance of the norcross apartments and found that by some accident the outer door had not latched he crept up four flights approached the door of flint's apartment put his ear to the keyhole and listened a hoarse burst of laughter greeted his ears there was no doubt of it even now no doubt with blood on their hands they were dividing the spoil what could he do nothing it seemed and yet he would not leave the place he walked downstairs trying to think of some plan to retrieve his blunder on the floor below he looked about saw a door without a nameplate tried it and found it was unlocked he opened it and walked in there was no carpet on the floor it was evident the flat was vacant he groped his way along the inner hall a long straight passage toward the rear and emerged finally after bumping into several corners into a small kitchen faintly illuminated by the moon through the windows he saw a fire escape he left his precious silk hat upon the wash-tubs lifted the sash crawled out and cautiously ascended the iron ladder the windows of the kitchen above however were dark and they were fastened there could be nothing done that way and he returned cruising about on a little voyage of discovery he found a candle-end and a few matches on the kitchen shelf he struck a light and sat down on the top of the tubs to think he had not waited long before he heard footsteps on the floor above then there was a rattle in the shaft and he heard the dumb-waiter descending holding his lighted candle in one hand fenton opened the sheet-iron door and saw the rope running he held the candle nearer and looked up the dumb-waiter was now visible slowly descending he watched it with his heart in his mouth 
It came to the level of his eyes, and he saw that both shelves were empty. The next moment he was surprised to see two feet, patent leathered, shining in the candlelight, standing on top of the apparatus. Slowly the waiter moved down, creaking. Pantaloons appeared, a coat, then hands carefully working at the rope. Another minute and the lower half of the body had disappeared in the hole, and he was confronted by the astonished eyes of Elkhurst, alias Sproule. The little car stopped. Sproule looked as queer as an actor in a Punch and Judy show, like some curious jack in the pulpit, though too amazed, too fearful, apparently, to speak. Fenton stood with the lighted candle dripping grease upon his evening coat, with his tall hat rakishly ajar upon his head. The moment was dramatic. There was an instant of fine, sustained suspense, and then the gentleman who had seen the more of the world spoke. By Jove, it's the chap I gave that tweed suit to. For heaven's sake, help me out and be quick about it. There was indeed need of haste, for above were now heard cries of rage and anger, hurrying footsteps, and finally a bang at the door of the shaft in the kitchen overhead. Sproule made a quick dive from his perch and landed in Fenton's arms. This extinguished the little light. The cries, meanwhile, had increased in vigor, and someone began violently pulling up the dumbwaiter. Sproule landed with stocking feet upon the kitchen floor. He released himself from Fenton's arms, then silently shut the door of the shaft. There was a riot overhead. Wait till I lock the front door. Are the windows bolted? Fasten them and we'll wait in the passageway. Is there a key to this confounded door? Yes, all right. Now then, come on, quick. Fenton fastened the kitchen windows and joined Sproule in the hallway. The kitchen door was locked. Then Sproul went to the door to the stairway and saw that it was also fastened. The clamor upstairs had ceased, or at least it could not be heard from where they stood. But in another moment they heard men rushing up the stairs, a pounding at the hall door above, then a smash as it was broken in. What's that? Fenton asked anxiously. By Jove, I believe they're pulled, said Sproul. I got out just in time. The police? Fenton inquired breathlessly. There has been a plain clothesman following me all the evening. I thought we had thrown him off the scent at the Knickerbocker before we came up here. But he must be up there with the cops. Wait till they come down. They waited for ten minutes without speaking, listening to the excitement upstairs, and finally the clumping of footsteps was heard on the stairs as a half-dozen men came down. As soon as they had passed, Sproul opened the door a crack and looked out, and seeing that they were almost down the next flight, ran to the banisters and looked over. Fenton joined him and saw the last of the group go round the corner. It was the man in the shepherd's plaid suit whom he had already seen that evening, at Sheffield Hall, at the plaza, and at the St. Paul building entrance. Jove, that was a narrow squeak if they don't search the house. Let's come into the front room and look. He led the way to a small front parlor, and up to the window, where they saw a patrol wagon standing. O'Shea and Flint were being helped in, and the man in the shepherd's plaid suit was talking to a policeman on the sidewalk. As Fenton watched, these two also got into the wagon, 
and it drove off. He's been watching me for a week, trying to locate the rest of the gang, said Sproul in a low voice. By Jove, if I could only get out of here, they wouldn't see me in New York for one while. Say, boy, he took Fenton by the arm, it may be hard for you to believe that I'm straight, but I can prove it. O'Shea knows it by this time, but luckily he daren't revenge himself on me for trying to queer this job with the Brewster Jewels. For a week I've been trying to give him the double-cross. Fenton drew back suspiciously, but despite the evidence against the man, his manner had candor. It was hard to believe him a murderer, yet it was hard, too, to believe his last assertion. A week? I don't see how that can be, he said. Why, the jewels were stolen only yesterday. Yes, but they might have gone at any minute. Flint and O'Shea have been planning to blow that safe at the Brewster house for a long while. Before they had things ready, Brewster got away with the stuff himself. As he left the safe door partly open, of course, Flint discovered it. And when that girl brought home Brewster's body, he suspected where the jewels must be. He was sure when she phoned him about them and promised to bring them up tonight. But O'Shea was suspicious of her. He judged everyone by himself. They were too valuable to trust to her care at any rate. So he watched her. She acted so queerly that I doubted her honesty myself, and was soon convinced that she was trying to get away with the stuff. Well, we shadowed her to the fortune-teller's house, and saw you go into the same place. After the raid, you came out of another house, so I followed you, leaving O'Shea to chase the girl. When we found you two together at Sheffield Hall, we were sure that you had fixed up some game. In fact, we could see easily enough by the look of you, you were pretty scared, that you had the jewels. So we didn't take any chances. O'Shea and Phillipsborne went after you. I was half a block behind, watching for the police when they got you. Phillipsborne? Fenton queried. Why, yes, he was a waiter O'Shea had known for some time. Queer chap, and clever, too. He had just about pulled off a queer game with a young chap named Morgan. He made up to Miss Morgan, posing as a foreign count, and got engaged to her. He was after a batch of pearls they had. O'Shea got him to help us follow the girl we suspected this evening, and as soon as that was finished, Phillipsborn was going back to the Morgans as Count Capricorni and close up that job. But he's dead, said Fenton. He must be the man I saw on the floor of Nallery's office in the St. Paul building. He drew away from Sproul with renewed suspicion. That's right, said Sproul soberly. And it was a pretty bad piece of business, too. Do you wonder I'm anxious to get away? But it was O'Shea that murdered him. And O'Shea will go to the chair for it safe enough. You see, as soon as we had the jewels, I took a couple of stones and pawned them for ready money, as we were terribly short of cash, arranging to meet them and Flint at the Bartholdi to divide up the loot. Flint was to wait up at the Norcross here, in case we missed you. Well, after I got up to the plaza for my grip, so as to be all ready to leave town, O'Shea telephoned me that he was afraid that he was followed, and asked me to meet him in the St. Paul building, where he had his fake office as Nallery and Company. I went down there hoping to get some chance to get away with the stuff myself. At any rate, I was determined that this would be my last job with O'Shea. Phillipsborn stood out for a full quarter, as his share, 
but O'Shea wouldn't have it. Phillipsborn pulled a gun, and then O'Shea went at him with a dirk, like a butcher. Phillipsborn went down, with O'Shea's knife between his ribs. It was horrible. He was gasping and bleeding on the rug, when O'Shea and I were terrified by a knock at the office door. It was I, said Fenton breathlessly. Well, we had to decide everything in a few seconds. We hadn't money enough to get away with. The only thing to do was to get up to Flint's and get him to give us some. I couldn't escape from O'Shea anyway. He was frightened white, and he clung like a leech. I knew that there was a detective after me. He had followed me from Sheffel Hall to the plaza, and was probably in the St. Paul building. But I had to take a chance that he wouldn't arrest me till I had led him to the rest of the gang he was after. He was running down a New Haven burglary, I was sure something we had pulled off a few days before. I could only hope that we could get up to Flint's, where I could get away from O'Shea, before the place was pulled. Well, I saw that plain clothesman out of the tail of my eye as we left, and we led him a chase, dodging up one street and down another, in and out of saloons, into hotels, even into one theatre. He kept on our trail like grim death for an hour, then I thought I had thrown him off the scent. By this time O'Shea was a pulp of fear and suspense. When we got to Flint's, though, and when Flint told of how you had handed over the jewels, O'Shea laughed like a fool. Flint didn't laugh, though, when he saw O'Shea in the light. The man's coat was streaked with blood, and his hands were red with it. Flint took the Irishman into the bathroom to clean up a little, leaving me in the kitchen that's when i grabbed the bag and jumped into the dumbwaiter he paused rose and looked out of the window anxiously they'll want you as a witness anyway won't they fenton asked i expect they will but they won't have me they've got evidence enough they'll convict o'shea easily this isn't the first thing they've got on him why they're after him now for that courtney kidnapping business and that was seventeen years ago Seventeen years ago, Fenton's mind had more than once that night gone back to O'Shea's part in his own childhood. He knew he must have been about four years old when he first knew O'Shea and the house in South Boston. Fenton was now twenty-one. He made a rapid subtraction and trembled at a sudden thought. He had begun to suspect that O'Shea was not his uncle. What if the mystery were at last to be explained? He tried to speak calmly, but his mind was whirling as he asked, What was that case? I never heard of it. I'll tell you about it while we wait, said Sproul, Elkhurst. It was certainly a curious affair, the story of the biter bit, you know. So, taking a position where he could look out of the window, he began. The Courtney kidnapping case. Seventeen years ago, Mangus O'Shea was a petty crook who was ready for any odd job that would bring him in a few dollars. He had begun life as a plumber, but gradually drifted into evil ways, and had already done a two-year's stretch in San Quentin, California, for sneak-thieving. After leaving the pen, he came east, where his face was not so well known to the police, and worked off and on at his trade, trying to keep straight. You see, he was one of those uncertain halfway characters whom you can respect neither as an honest man 
nor as an out-and-out -out crook courageously pitting his wits against the police his face was ugly red eyes and little black teeth a mongrel with a mongrel's temper he was pretty generally disliked in south boston where he lived well he picked up an acquaintance with a bunch of crooks that frequented the nucleus saloon on the point and they soon had him back in the game he was quick-witted enough cunning rather than clever though a good man to do their dirty work it was about this time let's see in ninety four it must have been that he met pye lemon pye they used to call him on account of his red hair lemon was a nova scotian and he was a genius bold and clever and versatile he was a big man every way he had a big body a big voice and a big laugh with a mind that could bore through things like a gimlet lemon was one of the finest confidence men in the business and he put over some sensational jobs in his time he had absolutely no moral sense he believed the world was his oyster and he opened it he would have made a great general if he had had the chance well pye lemon pye tolerated o'shea because the irishman could be so easily teased lemon would sit drinking with him chuckling at o'shea's temper and every little while landing a jab that would make o'shea writhe i never saw two men who were not friends fraternize so it seemed as if o'shea sought lemon's company all the time always hoping to get even with the big man but try as o'shea would lemon always won and o'shea grew surlier and surlier which pleased pye immensely one night o'shea read in his paper that a millionaire named j o h courtney down in jersey had made a couple of millions on a big deal in copper and mentioned it to the big fellow who was with him pye remarked that he'd like to get a slice of that profit then he rolled his cigar over to the other corner of his mouth calmly and added that he intended to get it too why you fool said o'shea you don't expect he carries it around with him or keeps it in the dining-room silver safe do you oh something like that pye answered confidently i happen to know where he does keep one prize piece of portable property and lemon rose and yawned like a menagerie lion i suppose you think you can con him out of his big money snarled o'shea you'll find these big chaps know that game themselves well if i start anything i'll have a pretty good argument to make him come across o'shea you ought to study psychology but you can't teach a rat mathematics he grinned down into o'shea's angry little red eyes chuckled and walked out o'shea forgot all about the conversation till one day about two months later he picked up a paper and stared fascinated at a three-column scarehead courtney's little four-year-old son bruce had been kidnapped and there was the devil to pay about it of course you're too young to remember the affair but it was the talk of the country the story ran on the front pages of the newspapers for three weeks and inside for at least two months more every sheriff and policeman in the country was trying to get the reward old man courtney nearly beggared himself paying for detectives and the thousand expenses of the search 
Now, as soon as O'Shea read the news, he made up his mind that Pye had the child. So, having inside information, and a few hundred dollars laid up against a rainy day, O'Shea decided to have a try for the reward. So far, so good. But what had become of Lemon? O'Shea started to find out. First he located Mrs. Pye in a lodging house on Tremont Street, Boston, and took a room there. Then he began to watch her mail. Three days after he moved in, he noticed a letter addressed to her on the hall stand. He sneaked it up to his room, opened it with a knitting needle, and read this. Am holding the goods for a rise. Expect to make a good sale. Address H. C. Stevens, 325 Duluth Place, Chicago. O'Shea grinned and patted himself on the back for getting ahead of Pye at last. He considered his fortune as good as made. He resealed the envelope, put the letter back on the stand, and jumped on to the first train for Chicago. No police assistance for him. He knew that if he tipped them off, they would collect the reward themselves and give him the laugh. What he had to do was to locate the kid and then wire Courtney to come on. As matters stood then, there was a reward of $5,000 for the return of the child. Mr. Courtney had offered 3000 the city of Orange a 1000 and the police a 1000 more. It was well worth working for. O'Shea was jubilant. He found that the address given in Pye's note was that of a small family hotel. O'Shea took a front room and interviewed the chambermaid who corroborated the note. Mr. Stevens and a young boy with black hair, not red, mind you, had a two-room suite on the floor below. O'Shea spent three hours at the window watching the street. At about four o'clock he saw Lemon coming in with the boy, and he was sure of his quarry. He ran out and wired Courtney to come on immediately. When he returned from the telegraph office, he found from the chambermaid that Mr. Stevens and his pseudo-son had already left. O'Shea was wild. Not only had the boy slipped through his fingers, but he had given Courtney evidence against himself, and he might be followed. There was nothing to do but get away and start on a new search. He cursed his indiscretion with the chambermaid, packed up his valise, and came back to Boston, determined next time he located Lemon to steal the child himself. Meanwhile, Mr. Courtney had raised his reward to $5,000, making 7000 in all. Mrs. Pye had moved. It cost O'Shea fifty-odd dollars, two weeks' time, and a lot of trouble to discover her. She was found, finally, in Plymouth where she was living alone in the Samoset house as Mrs. Stevens. O'Shea made the acquaintance of the clerk, posing as a Federal Secret Service agent, and finally got possession of a letter from Pye, giving his address in Detroit. O'Shea was off again, mad and tired and anxious. This time, when he got to the address, he ran bang into Pye, who was coming out the door alone. O'Shea had tried to disguise himself with a red wig, some court plaster patches, and a bandage, but his little red eyes and his little black teeth gave him away. Lemon gave one look at him. Lemon's eyes bored in like a corkscrew, and he chuckled. 
Well, he said good naturedly, was you looking for me, Mr. O'Shea? He was no more afraid of O'Shea than a bull would be of a puppy, and it made O'Shea furious. I'm looking for that Courtney kid, said the Irishman, and you'd better let me in on the deal, or I'll make it hot for you. Pye looked him over. Pye laughed till he shook. Oh, you can have the kid when I'm through with him, he said. I didn't know you wanted him so bad. I'll let you know when it's your turn. And Pye walked off as cool as a snowball. O'Shea nosed about a bit, found Lemon was living alone in the house. No trace of Bruce Courtney. Next day he got a clue that led him post-haste to Minneapolis. Nothing doing. It was hard work. No chance for him to get his linen washed economizing with his food, his money giving out, hot, tired, mad, fighting mad, but more and more determined to get that boy from Minneapolis to Charleston in a smoking car. He couldn't afford a sleeper now, and there the trail fizzled out, and meanwhile he was reading in the papers that the reward was raised to fifteen thousand. Sometimes he almost had his fingers on the kid, next day he was miles off the scent why pye just played with him it was a game of hare and hounds after a month of this sort of thing o'shea stumbled against a woman named lily dean pye used to know lily said he had gone back on her and told o'shea weeping into a lace handkerchief that pye was in washington up against it and out of cash o'shea followed up the tip and found it was straight Pye was hiding with a little boy with red hair in the negro quarter of town. O'Shea pawned his vest, his watch, and his revolver, and went after the kid. He watched his chance till Pye left the house, then broke into his room and found a little boy crying in a rocking chair. O'Shea went wild. He not only had the kid, but he found forty dollars in bills in the top bureau drawer. With these he got to Wilmington, took a room in a hotel, and wired a red-hot message to Mr. Courtney again. Then it occurred to him to search the child for marks of identification. The kid began to talk about Lily, and O'Shea had a panic. Finally he found a note in the little boy's trousers pocket. It read, Not yet, but soon. O'Shea caved in and cried. It wasn't the Courtney kid at all but some boy Pye had borrowed for the purpose of throwing O'Shea off the track. Well, that broke up what was left of O'Shea's enthusiasm for the reward. He left the kid in the hotel and went home stone broke. His wife was away in Fitchburg with her sister, who was ill, and O'Shea sulked about the house, hungry, cold, and disappointed, till in despair he got a job at his trade and tried to forget the reward. Meanwhile, the reward had been increased again till it stood at $20,000. O'Shea, knowing Pye had the child, was of course crazy to use that information, but his telegrams to Mr. Courtney and his stealing of the other child prevented his daring to use what he knew. Well, as I said, Pye was a genius. The way he collected ransom for Bruce Courtney has never been beaten. Of course, Mr. Courtney was nearly insane by this time, and ready to do anything to get his son back. The police seemed able to do nothing. One day he received a letter accurately describing Bruce and offering to give him up for $5,000.
with the advice of his detectives mr courtney decided to accept the bargain pay over the money and arrest the one who received it the letter directed him to leave the money in thousand-dollar bills tucked into the cushion of a certain easy-chair in the public parlor of a new york hotel at a certain time this was done and the chair was watched a stylishly dressed young lady pye's friend lily dean it was sat down in the chair took a letter from her bag read it calmly then rose and walked to another chair and sat a while the detectives watched her till she left the parlor then they nabbed her of course she protested her innocence but in spite of her anger she was taken to a room and searched no money was found on her and after some delay in the hope of identifying her she was discharged from custody do you see how the trick was done she had removed the money from the first chair gone over to the second and hidden it there in a similar place then during the excitement of her arrest another person had gone to chair number two got the bills and made off it was a daringly simple plan and succeeded perfectly the girl's confederates were never traced the money was obtained but the kidnappers did not return the child no doubt they were afraid of the risk it made a tremendous amount of talk when the facts were published the whole subject became prominent in the papers again o'shea read of it of course and his opinion of lemon's cleverness went up he was considerably afraid too that his own part in the business might be traced and kept pretty quiet he was desperately hard up now and kept his eyes open for a means of raising money more easily than by working for it his wife's sister meanwhile had died he had to pay the funeral expenses and send his nephew to an orphan asylum o'shea was not happy these days one day he was riding in a columbus avenue car in boston when two men came in and sat down beside him they were discussing something earnestly and o'shea always with his ears open for news listened for a while he couldn't make out what they were talking about but finally it developed that one was telling of a basket of silverware a large basket it appeared fitted up in compartments containing a complete assortment of solid silver dining plate this sounded good to o'shea he listened more closely the house one said was vacant the family being away in the country seems to me it's kind of dangerous leaving that silver there alone all night said one of the men oh it's all right you get it early in the morning and ship it down to marblehead i can't bother to stay out there all night said the other pretty handy for burglars though easy to get away with all packed up like that oh they never have burglars out brighton way it's a small house and don't look like they'd ever be anything worth stealing there on harvard street is it how'll i know which house it is why it's just the other side of the brighton road toward alston village don't you remember that little yellow house with the stable on a rise of land at the turn of the road oh i expect i can find it all right i'll call about seven o'clock where is it in the dining-room yep the first speaker handed over a house-key you can't miss it be sure and have it insured it's all sealed up and addressed the two men got off the car and o'shea grinned he decided to go after that silver himself that night get it home and melt it up as soon as he could get a furnace 
he could easily sell it at one of the fences he knew. That evening he hired an old covered wagon and drove out over the mill dam and out the Brighton Road to Harvard Street. The house was easily found. O'Shea left his wagon outside, slipped round to the back of the house, and jimmied the dining-room window. It was nothing at all to do. He got in, found a huge wicker basket tied up, sealed and addressed, as had been described, and lifted it. It was heavier than he expected, but he opened the front door and got it out that way, though it was a hard job. He watched till he was sure there was no one passing, hoisted the basket into his cart, and drove back home in a high good humor. It was two o'clock when he reached the little side street where he lived, and got the basket into his house, and called his wife. She was anxious as he was to see the swag. They cut the ropes and threw up the lid. There, resting on old bed quilts, carefully arranged so that he could not be harmed, was a child of four years of age, apparently dead. O'Shea stared in horror. His wife nearly fainted. One look at the child told the story. It was Bruce Courtney, the boy O'Shea had spent three months and his last dollar trying to capture. His hair at first sight seemed black, but at the roots it showed reddish, proving that it had been dyed. Around his neck was a gold locket set with a star in diamonds pictures of which had appeared in all the newspapers. If there had been any doubt about the boy's identity, the note pinned to his breast would have settled it. It was from Lemon Pie, and said, You can have him now. I'm through with him. L.P. You can imagine O'Shea's feelings. With the hue and cry after Bruce Courtney, it was like receiving a present of a stick of dynamite with a fuse lighted. Despite the fact that $20,000 reward had been offered for the boy, his presence was the most dangerous thing possible. How could O'Shea ever explain how he had found him? He could not confess to a burglary. He was already in none too good repute with the police, and his movements where the boy had undoubtedly been could probably be traced if he disclosed the information. But worse than this, what if the boy were dead? it would be almost impossible to dispose of the corpse. The case was desperate. O'Shea summoned his nerve, took up the boy, and found that he was still breathing, but in a deep stupor. At all hazards he must be revived if it were possible. While O'Shea hurried out for a doctor, Mrs. O'Shea undressed the child, put him to bed, and disposed of the blanket. It was two in the morning when the doctor arrived. He looked at the boy and looked again. Then he turned to O'Shea. Is this your child? he asked sharply. Mrs. O'Shea answered quickly, as women will in an emergency. It's my sister's boy, doctor. She died last week, and we're going to adopt the poor little fellow. Will he live, do you think? She burst into tears. Well, that settled it. Luckily, she had talked with her neighbors of her sister's death, and they all knew of the boy. The O'Sheas took the bull by the horns and made the best of a pretty bad bargain. Bruce Courtney became Michael O'Shea. He recovered from the drugs, had his head shaved, and in a week was in a pretty fair way to grow into a South Boston tough. But when the reward was again raised for the return of Courtney's son, O'Shea looked at his wife and sighed. He's worth $25,000 as he stands, he groaned. 
and I dasn't claim one cent of it. This kidnapping business ain't what it's cracked up to be. You can't get no easy money in this world. We'll have to put the boy to work. He's a bad investment for them what can't afford him. This thought was rubbed into him well by Lemon Pie, who, fat and complacent at the end of his victorious campaign, one day met O'Shea as he was going to work with his soldering iron and lead pipes. You was in too much of a hurry for that silver, O'Shea, he said. We had bare time to feed the poor kitty the knockout drops before you was in at the window. I would have come downstairs and helped you with the basket, only I was laughing that hard I couldn't move. I hated to part with the lad, for I was growing fond of him, but the detectives was getting too lively for me, and besides, you wanted him so bad, I thought it was a shame not to let you have him. Long before Sproul Elkhurst had finished his story, Fenton, or as he undoubtedly must begin to call himself, Bruce Courtney, had gone off into a reverie. Was he Bruce Courtney? There could be no doubt of it. Everything tallied with what he knew of his own history, and the evidence of the golden locket was alone sufficiently convincing. What it could mean to him in the future, he could not guess, but it kindled his imagination and his pride. If this could be proved, he would be no longer the obscure, unknown architectural draughtsman. He would have a legal name, relatives, and perhaps money. It came to him in a flash that, above all, this might give him a position which would enable him to meet Belcharmian more easily. He dared not trust himself to speak, however. He was not yet sure of Sproul. There were the Brewster jewels, too, to be accounted for. What had become of them? Should he still have to fight for them? Sproul, who had given another long, careful look out of the window, now returned and interrupted Fenton's daydream by a light touch on the shoulder. Do you believe I'm straight? he asked seriously. It was hard for Fenton to reply. He knew Sproul for a pal of O'Shea's, a crook, and perhaps worse. Might he not, in spite of what he had told, be an accomplice to the murder? as he was undoubtedly an accessory after the fact. And yet the man also had candor, that could scarce be doubted. There was something Fenton liked about him. He had charm. Oh, I don't know, Fenton stammered. How do I know you're telling me the truth? You say you tried to queer O'Shea's job, but here I find you with him right in the game all through. I think I can prove it, said Sproul calmly. He unbuttoned his coat, drew forth a soft leather bag, and poured from it a glittering collection of jewelry, sparkling with precious stones upon the floor. Fenton stared. For the third time that night he had come strangely across the Brewster jewels. It seemed impossible. Despite the seriousness of the occasion, he had to smile, as at some grotesque joke. It seemed that, despite all his blunders, he could not lose this mysterious treasure. He looked up at Sproul in wonder. Will you take this stuff back to the Brewster house? Sproul asked quietly. Fenton nodded, still staring with wonder. Then he added, I'll try it again, but for heaven's sake, explain your part in all this. All right, said Sproul. I will. I admit that I have been a crook. For five years I have been a member 
of one of the cleverest and most desperate gangs in the country. But I've broken away, or tried to. Tonight, if I succeeded, was to end it all. Maybe I can do it yet. I hardly know how to make you believe what I want to say. If you only knew my wife, I think you might understand. I do know your wife, said Fenton. She came into your apartment at the plaza before I left. I had a long talk with her. You did? Spruill's voice trembled with excitement. Did she? But, of course, you couldn't know. She'd never tell if she suspected. She knows that you're a crook, said Fenton quietly. Oh, God! Spruill buried his face in his hands. Fenton put his hand on the man's shoulder. See here, old man, he said kindly. If you're honest, if you want to be straight, the best thing you can do is to go right to her, if you can possibly get away. She's going to take the first train to Philadelphia tomorrow. You'd better meet her there. Oh, I can't face her. I daren't. You must. You'll find she'll forgive you. She'll do more than that. She'll help you to turn over a new leaf. I know, for she has said so to me. Spruill spoke between gritted teeth. If you knew how I love her, you'd believe me. My love for her has kept me in hell for a year, trying to break away from this gang. You don't know what a fight it has been. O'Shea is a devil. He has it on me for so many things I've done, in the past, that she doesn't know about. Oh, I'd have done my time and been happy enough in jail to get away from O'Shea, but I couldn't disgrace her. She loved me so, trusted me so. I've tried and tried to break with him, but each time he's pulled me back into the net, threatening to expose me. It was no use. So yesterday I decided to leave her. If I was caught, at least it wouldn't drag her name into it. I had an idea she had already begun to suspect me, so I decided never to come back to her and let her think what she would. Do you really think that she'd give me a chance? If you'd explain a matter of a ruby necklace, I think she would. Oh, God, did she tell you that? That was something I've almost died about since. It was a horrible thing to do, but I was distracted. I didn't know what I was doing, really. I knew I had to leave her and I wanted to give her something in remembrance of me. We had cleaned up a house in New Haven. I got hold of this necklace out of the swag, without O'Shea's knowing it, and I gave it to her. It was a crazy, horrible thing to do. I see it now. It might be discovered on her any time. But I was distracted, I tell you. I didn't think. I only knew I loved her, and I had lost her forever. I had to do something. That necklace has been her curse but you can make it her blessing if you want to, said Fenton. Go to her, and she will tell you something about it, and something that should make you two love each other more than ever. I'll try, said Spruill. If I get out of this safe, I'll take her abroad somewhere and begin all over again. It was nearly four o'clock by this time. Fenton, cramped and stiff, rose and walked about the room, and looked out for the first signs of dawn while Spruill Elkhurst reconnoitred from the hall door. After fifteen minutes he came back. Well, I'm going to try it, he said. Good-bye, and if they get me, I want you to do one thing for me. I know, said Fenton. You want me to tell your wife that you had tried to be straight, for love of her, Spruill added. Then he wrung Fenton's hand and slipped down the stairs. Fenton watched from the window. 
saw him walk with an apparently careless, leisurely stride along the street toward Broadway and disappear round the corner. Then Fenton brushed his silk hat lovingly, put it on, buttoned the bag of jewels inside his waistcoat, and walked downstairs. End of chapter 11